and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is George Conk, Senior Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics at the Fordham University School of Law. We will discuss his article, People's Electric, Engage Legal Education at Rutgers Newark Law School in the 1960s and 1970s, which was published in the Fordham Urban Law Journal, among other things. So welcome to the show, George. Thank you. My pleasure. So this is, I'm really excited to talk to you about this paper because I didn't know this story that you told about Rutgers Law School. And and I'd really like you to sort of just like start maybe by kind of explaining what was so unique and special about Rutgers Newark Law School, especially in the period that you describe. Great. Uh, the the opening of the article kind of tells uh, tells the story um, of of me and and that place, which was that. Uh, I had just returned from uh, two years in the Peace Corps in India, and uh, I'd just started graduate school. I was studying uh, with uh, the radical historian uh, Howard Zinn at uh, Boston University, and the cause celeb of, of the moment was the prosecution of uh, leaders of the anti-war movement and of one of the two founders of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale. And so that trial was called the Chicago Eight. And uh, the the posters for uh, soliciting support for that case uh, said, uh, join the conspiracy. And so they were being... Uh, tried at that moment in uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. And uh, there was a, a rally. Uh, and, I, you know, I was a young uh, uh, anti-war movement activist, uh, fresh from uh, from two years in uh, actually a small town just north of Bombay. And uh, here I was. Uh, I'd missed Woodstock and... Uh, was uh, a student of a guy who was prominent in the anti-war movement. And so I was a natural, and I went to uh, a rally sponsored by the National Lawyers Guild at Harvard Law School, and it was a packed room. And uh, the speakers included two of the uh, defense lawyers for uh, these leaders of the anti-war movement. And just to give you a sense of the moment, it was a trial that was... uh, very contentious and the judge uh, was very harsh and ultimately held the defense lawyers uh, in contempt. And the most notorious moment was that the leader of the Black Panthers, Bobby Seale, had been bound and gagged and strapped to his chair in the courtroom. So that was the kind of atmosphere of what was going on. And the stemwinder speech was by uh, a Rutgers law professor who had been a prominent lawyer in the Southern civil rights movement, uh, Arthur Kenoy. And Arthur Kenoy's 
uh, three great triumphs were uh, the cases of Powell versus McCormick. The uh, McCormick was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and they had voted to bar the uh, Black Harlem Congressman uh, uh, Powell from taking his seat in Congress because he had brought discredit on the institution when he was found civilly liable for slandering a woman who he called uh, a bag lady for the numbers racket. And so uh, Congressman Powell, who was one of the uh, most prominent black leaders, uh, was successfully uh, allowed to take his seat uh, as a result of, uh, of Kenoy's representation and the case is Powell versus McCormick, and it was a breach in the wall of uh, <clears throat> the justiciability uh, political question doctrine. His other uh, big win was uh, the uh, a case in the that arose in the South when a, a prosecution was enjoined on the grounds that. It had been initiated in, uh, in in bad faith, and his third was uh, United States versus United States District Court, in which uh, he successfully obtained a, a writ of mandamus. This while I was in law school, uh, and I actually had a very very small hand in that case. Uh, <clears throat> so, in U.S. versus U.S. District Courts, the writ of mandamus uh, blocked. Uh, a uh, a search warrant that had been uh, issued on the grounds that foreign it was a foreign intelligence uh, based uh, warrant and yet there was no foreign intelligence uh, involved in the case the defendant was a uh, a kind of fringe uh, political figure so. Here, here was Kenoy, and he, he was the, leading the legal backup team for the trial of the Chicago Eight. And he was a stem-winding speaker, and he stood there and said, uh, the legal backup work that's, is being done at Rutgers Law School in Newark, and there are law students in the library till midnight tonight and every night doing the work necessary to fight off this attack. And so he gave these kinds of speeches around the country, uh, and uh, we all came. Uh, so he recruited this class of, of young activists, and we got to Rutgers Law School and found that Rutgers Law School was a very special place. For one thing, uh, it was a school that had as a mandatory course for first-year students, uh, legal representation of the poor, and its minority student program, which had been uh, initiated by uh, Willard Heckel, uh, who had just stepped down as dean, had as a, a goal to recruit first uh, 20 African-American students, and then in the next year, to recruit 30, and 30 in the following year. And so when I started Rutgers Law School, 
30 of the 150 members of the uh, entering class were African-American or Latino students. For listeners who weren't, you know, who don't know what law school education was really like firsthand during that period, I wonder if you could contrast your experience at Rutgers Law School at that point in time with what law school was like at other schools. Well, first of all, there weren't uh, black students in any significant numbers unless you went to a historically black college and university. Uh, And there was no such thing as a law school uh, in the North that had 20% black students. Uh, The other thing was that uh, the uh, presence of women students was really uh, trivial uh, just about every place uh, except uh, Rutgers Newark, <clears throat> where these uh, uh, the, the ranks of women were greatly bolstered by the newly resurgent movement that referred to itself as the women's liberation movement, and they were uh, attracted, uh, many of them, by the fact that one of the first courses on women and the law was being taught by uh, a civil procedure professor named uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so there was the place, you know, uh, this uh, influx of principally African-American students, anti-war activists, and young women uh, energized by uh, the women's liberation movement. And that made the place uh, uh, unique. I should add one other thing, which is that it was a state university and the tuition was $500. And uh, I, my choices about where to go to law school were Boston University and Boston College. And I think I was waitlisted at Berkeley. But $500 for law school, uh, BU was $2,500. So uh, that also made it possible for uh, this successful recruitment, particularly of minority students. So there was no place else like it. Mm. Well, could you talk a little bit more about some of the other faculty members? Because it sounds like at that period of time in particular, the law school had a lot of really interesting, important, and frankly, radical people on the faculty. Well, the first, of course, was uh, was Arthur Kanoy, you know, the one who uh, had won Dombrowski versus Pfister, the injunction against a bad faith prosecution. And he was the leader of the uh, uh, <clears throat> appellate, now appellate uh, proceeding in uh, the Chicago 7 case. And so the first thing that happened was there were 20,000 pages of transcript and uh, dozens of us volunteered and we were given uh, one or two volumes each to summarize the facts and help with uh, help him with the brief so he was he was the first he was the uh, he was the pied piper but others uh included uh Frank Askin who would later become uh general counsel of the uh, ACLU nationally and who was the longtime director of the constitutional litigation clinic Uh, He was uh, particularly involved with uh, 
police surveillance uh, issues. He had filed a case called Anderson versus Sills, uh, uh, trying to stop the uh, surveillance of uh, anti-war uh, demonstrators by uh, police throughout the state of New Jersey. He was so he was a, an important uh, leader. Uh, William Bender was a uh, uh, staff attorney at the Constitutional Litigation Clinic. The second case that I ever uh, worked on, the first was the Chicago 7 case. Uh, I remember Kenoy said to me, uh, write an ex-party Milligan point for me. I don't know what our ex-party Milligan was. But I, you know, took some facts and read the case and put some words together. But uh, Bender, I worked for and uh, in the summer after my first year. And the case he was working on was uh, Jeanette Rankin Brigade versus Chief of the Capitol Police. And that was a, a group of uh, middle-class uh, women who had been barred from uh, parading in, on the steps of the United States Capitol. Uh, and uh, they filed a lawsuit, and it was joined by uh, people like Congressman Ron Dellums of the uh, uh one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, and Bella Abzug, the uh, liberal congresswoman from uh, from Greenwich Village. And so that was uh, a challenge to the constitutionality of the statute that barred parades on the Capitol grounds. Uh, <clears throat> Alfred Blumrosen was the first general counsel of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. He and his wife, uh, who, who was uh, uh, an impressive lawyer herself, had been involved in uh, some of the most important civil rights litigation in the state of New Jersey, uh, challenging, among other things, uh, racial discrimination by the uh, real estate developer, the suburban real estate developer, Arthur Levitt, who built three Levittowns, one in Long Island, New York, one in New Jersey, and one, one in Pennsylvania. Uh, he uh, also, he, uh, Blumrosen, started something called the Administrative Process Project, of which I was a student. Uh, and uh, uh, that was a 10-credit clinic. Uh, okay. Anna Mae Shepard had been a lawyer in private practice and uh, a leader in the local uh, legal aid society, and she was the uh, was the third uh, female faculty member, and she started the uh, Urban Legal Clinic, which was basically a legal services office run out of the law school, in which her co-director was Richard Chusid who went on to become uh, a law professor at Georgetown. Uh, Paul Trachtenberg was uh, interested in education, and uh, he was a, a driving force behind the litigation in, uh, in New Jersey, uh, which went on for 40 years to... Uh, uh, try to accomplish more equitable funding of schools in the state. And he, he founded uh, a 
blanking on the name of the uh, uh, Education Law Center, just based in Newark. Uh, I guess that brings us to Ruth Ginsburg. And so uh, Ruth Ginsburg was a specialist in civil procedure. Her scholarly work had been on uh, Swedish civil procedure. And the women uh, all uh, clustered around her. We called her Ruth. Uh, And she, in civil procedure, she was my civil procedure teacher, uh, laid out her strategy, uh, which she expressly uh, based on Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund strategy, and her objective was to establish the principle that gender-based distinctions in the law should be treated as a suspect classification. So she laid out that strategy and the litigation that she was just beginning, which is the first litigation of her life, uh, in uh, civil procedure in my second semester of law school. Uh, the next year, she had the first uh, seminar in uh, in Women and the Law, and there was no such thing as Women and the Law. There's a very good book called Equal. Uh, the name of the author escapes me at the moment, but it, it's cited in my People's Electric article. And he tells uh, the story of that, uh, of that era, the uh, women's rights litigation. So Ruth Ginsburg's first seminar on women in the law at Rutgers, the first thing she assigned was Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. There was no literature of women in the law, but she set about solving that problem and uh, she brought in a brilliant uh, woman named Nadine Taub and with uh, a, a couple of, uh, a group of women students, one of whom later married Professor Chusid, uh they founded the Women's Rights Law Reporter. And that was the first, uh, uh, that, that was the first women's rights law reporter or law review uh, in the country, as far as I know. Uh, and then there was the minority student program, and uh, uh, Lennox Hines was actually a, a student there. He became the director of National Conference of Black Lawyers, and uh, that was uh, was led by Alfred Slocum, who was a, a black professor who had graduated uh, first in his class from Rutgers Newark. And then done the uh, gotten the Ivy League uh, dip, gone to Yale for a year and gotten an LLM and came back as uh, uh, as a professor. And so he was uh, the the faculty leader along with Charles Jones, another black professor who taught criminal law uh, of the the minority student program and. Uh, so that was what the place was like. So, George, I, want, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this wonderful name, People's Electric. Where did that, where does, where did that come from? What did it mean? And why did the name seem to mean so much to people who went to school there? There was a band in California called People's Gas and Electric, uh, 
that partly came from there. Uh, using the word peoples was uh, a very popular, uh, you know, kind of radical thing at the time. And uh, you know, electric was a, uh, a term, you know, there was a, the, the famous uh, recording studio, Electric Ladyland. And uh, Electric had this uh, kind of psychedelic uh, uh, connotation. So uh, it was just a coinage by uh, uh, one of us, uh, I, I, I don't know who. And so we called it People's, People's Electric Law School. It was a place where people lit up in more way than one. So to what extent do you think that the sort of Rutgers, Newark, People's Electric model of the 1960s and 1970s has informed legal education today? And how do you think, you know, we might incorporate more of that into what we're doing in legal education? The first thing we'd really want to do is is restore the principle of making public education affordable. Th that was much of what made uh, Rutgers possible so that you could uh, go to Rutgers Law School aspiring to engage in public service and come out of law school not burdened by debt. Uh, and so th uh, th that is uh, a, a, bi a big obstacle in, in today. Uh, Rutgers Newark, uh, which is now merged with Rutgers Camden, which was somewhat more traditional uh, in its approach to legal education, is, is still a center. They, they have not lost the spirit. Uh, the dean who recently stepped down, uh, Ronald Chen, who's Chinese-American, uh, was first in his class at, uh, at, at Rutgers, uh, eventually in Newark, eventually became the dean, came out of the minority student program, has been a brilliant lawyer for the ACLU, uh, a leader in public service in New Jersey, and uh, uh, and and a, a brilliant guy. I'm on three committees with him, the Advisory Committee on Professional Ethics of the New Jersey Supreme Court, the Editorial Board of the New Jersey Law Journal, and uh, the Amicus Committee of the New Jersey State Bar Association. But unlike the usual course to becoming a dean, I think that the only law review article he's ever written is the one that he wrote uh, for the Rutgers Law Review when he was a student. So that model has uh, has persisted at, at Rutgers Newark, which is that uh, clinical education and engagement uh, in uh, impact litigation is is as valued as is scholarship. And there are some great uh, scholars there. James Gray Pope has done work that I think is absolutely brilliant on uh, reconstruction. Uh, his uh, essays on, on Crookshank uh, are, I, I think, transformative, really. Uh, so there's lots of good scholarship there. It's not that scholarship is discounted. It's that it, it's driven by uh, the desire to have an impact on how the law develops. 
Uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, it seems to me that like even scholars at at Rutgers are also people with impact. I know my law school friend Tajania Henderson has been there for a while, and she's done a lot of really cool stuff. Yes, yes, yeah, she's she's great. Uh, if you want to find a law school that's of the same spirit today, uh, Northeastern University Law School uh, is, I think, probably the the closest to uh, to Rutgers Newark uh, then and and now uh, in spirit. And it's not coincidental that the former dean there is uh, Roger Abrams, who had been dean of uh, of Rutgers Newark. But when you look at scholarship of people like uh, Wendy Parmet on uh, public health, uh, uh, Richard Daynard on his uh, tobacco litigation product liability project. Uh, that, that's a school that has uh, valued uh, impact litigation in a way very similar to the transformative litigation, especially on things like open housing, the uh, line of, of cases in in New Jersey that was initiated at Rutgers Newark, the equitable school funding litigation. So uh, I, I think that uh, equitable school funding uh, is an area where there's room in every state to, uh, to have an impact. And I think that uh, that would be a you know, a, a good place for law schools that are looking to have a, a public impact, uh, especially in the present moment, to uh, look to develop both scholarship and, uh, uh, and, and and clinical work. Well, so I wonder, I mean, do you think that the legal academy and sort of the kind of legal profession in general undervalue clinical education and the kind of engaged legal pedagogy that you're describing? Yes. Yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course they do. Uh, The accreditation authorities don't require that clinical professors be given tenure like everybody else. So, I don't think you need to go um, beyond that to be able to answer the question, yes. It it doesn't have the same uh, uh, respect in the the academy. The academy has moved toward uh, toward theory uh, rather than doctrine. I think that's another uh, thing that has... uh, that reflects a reduction in the value placed on uh, having an impact on the law. The days when uh, we turned to, uh, to to law professor treatises, whether on uh, evidence or uh, or damages or or the like, for guidance as practitioners, uh, have uh, also waned. So the the engagement, the degree of engagement and interaction between law schools and uh, and the practice has uh, also reduced. Well, so George, I was wondering if you could spend some time talking about how you took your experiences 
at Rutgers Newark and sort of put them into practice in your own career. In particular, I know that you had an interesting experience representing Stephen Jay Gould. I wonder if you could talk about that briefly. Well, when I uh, uh, I, I practiced law for myself, I was self-employed from 1979 through uh, 2006. <clears throat> and I started off uh, trying to develop a plaintiff's personal injury uh, practice. I worked at a law firm that did that kind of work uh, and occupational disease work. Uh, and uh, I had contacts in the trade union movement and factories. And so I was involved with issues of occupational safety and health. And um, I represented you know, dozens and dozens of, of, of workers who had occupational lung disease and uh, also uh, probably the most lucrative uh, part of my practice was uh, product liability claims uh, resulting principally from hand injuries in, uh, in heavy industry. So uh, my personal uh, financial interests uh, concurred with my uh, kind of ideological loyalties. And so I developed some expertise in, in product liability law and uh, particularly was interested in occupational lung disease. And so I started, uh, I didn't have many of those clients my, myself that were exposed to asbestos, but uh, I got work writing for, uh, for other lawyers doing some appellate work and uh, um, a moment came when uh, the N New Jersey Supreme Court uh, issued an order asking for additional briefs for a case to be re-argued. And the case was called Landrigan versus Celotex and its uh, uh, companion case in what they called increased risk cases. So <clears throat> uh, I wrote a, a, a brief about how to make use of epidemiological evidence uh, in order to uh, prove causation. And I, in order to do that, I uh, deepened my uh, uh, study of the work of the, uh, of the great uh, epidemiologists uh, who had uh, brought to public attention the, the dangers of, uh, of asbestos. But then when courts were asking, how do I, uh, how should we handle novel scientific uh, opinions? That was the way they framed it uh, in New Jersey and also in a federal case called Christofferson. Um, and how should, what use should we make of epidemiological evidence? Uh, I, I learned of that order and I tried to, I was editing a newsletter for the state bar and I tried to find somebody to write about. It. And then I said to myself, you know what? The case isn't over. Get into the case. So I, I wrote a friend of the court brief for the Trial Lawyers Association. And the arguments that I developed was uh, that you can't just do these things by the numbers. You have to uh, assess the evidence in a 
kind of all things considered way. And uh, so my objective was to defeat an argument that you had to show a doubled risk of disease in an epidemiological study in order to prevail on causation. But the subtext of that was that I started reading about uh, epidemiology and uh, Austin Bradford Hill, the the great uh, British epidemiologist. And the next, uh, and we won this case in New Jersey, Landrigan versus Celotex, which presaged what became the, the Daubert case. And so by the, when the Daubert case, uh, Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, which was a pharmaceutical product liability case, uh, came to the Supreme Court, the conservative uh, attack was based on the idea that uh, expert opinion testimony should not be admissible unless it represented the consensus opinion in a field. And so I'd long been a student of student, a subscriber to uh, Natural History magazine because I really enjoyed the monthly columns by Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote a lot about the nature of scientific knowledge. And uh, <clears throat> I remembered uh, on my bookshelf uh, Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And that said, it's not mm. just consensus, right? The, the scientific progress hand uh, advances through uh, through contention, rather like the law does. And so I I wrote an outline for the Trial Lawyers Association uh, that uh, used Kuhn's argument uh, structure with. Uh, the idea that Stephen Jay Gould would sign on to this argument. And uh, so the Ned Miltenberg, who was the vice counsel of uh, uh, the Trial Lawyers Association, went to Kuhn, and Kuhn said, I don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Uh, go talk to Gould. And so then he went to Gould and said, Kuhn said to talk to you. Uh, and once Stephen Jay Gould signed on, then... Uh, he was a superstar, and then everybody else wanted to be associated with it. And so it became the brief of philosophers and historians of science. <laughs> so uh, we formed one pole of the argument, and we said, look, uh, it's like Galileo. Sometimes the dissenting position is the right position. Uh, consensus is not uh, what judges should be looking for what they should be looking for is whether something is soundly reasoned and uh basically we won that argument in uh uh in in the, in the Supreme Court in the opinion of uh of Justice Blackman and it, it 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 took a while for the courts to sort it out but i think it worked out okay the basic standard now is that uh Expert witnesses have to bring the same rigor to and methods to their courtroom opinions that they do to their ordinary professional work. So in addition, you've done recent work on Chinese law. I wonder if you could talk a little bit just briefly about the work that you've done and why you found that interesting and sort of how that might have informed your thinking 
about American law. Okay, so the way that happened is um, I represented the Hemophilia Association of New Jersey, which brought product liability, which was supporting product liability claims by hemophiliacs who'd gotten AIDS and hepatitis C. And uh, I uh, used those facts to develop a critique of the uh, proposed very restrictive rule on drug and medical device product liability uh, enunciated by the ALI in the product's liability restatement. And so I wrote that up and uh, as a, you know, single practitioner, as a small firm practitioner uh, and uh, circulated to a bunch of law reviews. I was teaching part-time at Seton Hall by the time and uh, sent it out in the beginning of July and uh, got a bunch of offers. And one of those calls was from the Yale Law Journal. And did I want, was I, was it available? And was I willing to accept their offer? And so I said, yes. And it came out in March, 2000. And uh, six months later, I got a message from a PhD candidate at Peking University who said, this is a very interesting article. And as our law develops, this could be very helpful to Chinese legislators. Uh, Could I translate it? So I thought, oh, I wanted to have an impact on the law. That's why I did all this. So now am I really going to have a chance to change the law in China? So uh, um, there was a rebuttal and I had a follow-on piece and they were all translated and published in the same journal. And so I hired an editor to assist with the translation. And so when that was all done, I wanted to go meet these people. And uh, having uh, the experience of, uh, of two years in India, I knew that I did not want to go to a foreign country like that and be illiterate. I wanted to be able to communicate. So I started studying Chinese, and then I did the natural thing, which is, you know, I met people and uh, at, who were at the leading universities, and uh, they gave me a copy of the then draft civil code, and uh, I brought it to a Chinese law uh, uh, expert, Professor Whitmore Gray at Fordham, and said, uh, Whit, you translated the basic principles, the general principles of civil law uh, from Chinese into English do you want to translate this? And he said, no, you do it. Uh, and I, uh, <laughs> he said here, and he, he handed me his worksheets on, uh, including his glossary from his uh, translation of the 1986 law. This was 2003 and, or 2004. And, uh, so I just set about doing it, you know, and I'd like to translation work from when I studied Greek in college. I mean, in high school, rather, actually high school and college. But uh, one of the most fun things in my life was translating the, the Odyssey from Attic Greek. And uh, there was something about the magic of uh, things emerging from this strange tongue that always intrigued me. And so that's what happened with Chinese. So I translated the, I was the first person to translate the draft Chinese tort code and I published it in 2007. And I just last week uh, posted a a 
translation of the Chinese tort section of the new comprehensive civil code that was passed on uh, on, on May 28th. So that's how that came to be. Amazing. Well, George, I wonder if in closing, um, I know you're an avid sailor and in particular a huge fan of wooden boats. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sailing and wooden boats and what they mean to you. Uh, it's The Craft of Sail is one of my favorite books about sailing. And uh, I think it's the physicality of it, uh, of responding to wind. It, 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 it's wood, water, and light is the, actually the magic of, of wooden boats. And uh, the interaction of wind, waves, and sun uh, I've loved since I was a child. And uh, my father sailed, and I sailed as a boy. And uh, we uh, have a house on the coast of Maine in, the fa- in a famous boat-building town. Um, there's just... There's nothing more absorbing to me than responding to the changes in, in wind and water and the quiet of sailing. Well, George, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you, hearing about Newark Wreckers and all of the amazing things you've done. And I look forward to seeing what comes next. Okay, great. Well, let me just add one more thing, which is that I'm not the only one who, uh, who pursued that, uh, uh, my classmate Wade Henderson was the leader of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law for many years. Uh, my classmate Donald Lieberman is the now longtime uh, leader of the ACLU in New York. Uh, Carlin Meyer, uh, a classmate, was a longtime law professor at uh, uh, New York Law School. Uh, Lennox Hines led the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Uh, so, uh, oh, and uh, I always need to re- remember to mention uh, Dale Jones, my classmate and fellow trial lawyer at the Public Defenders. And uh, Dale led the Capital Defense Unit at, for many, many years, for 20 years at the Public Defenders Office in, in New Jersey, which ended with the repeal of the death penalty, and uh, no one uh, executed. So there are a lot of people who have uh, pursued, engage the legal education uh, from that uh, era, and we've had uh, an impact on the law. Well, God willing, back to the future, I think it's a model we could really use going forward. So thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity, Brian. And I want to commend you uh, for uh, your fascinating work about the, uh, uh, about the inventor of a, of a plow, the slave inventor of a plow. Uh, 
I've uh, it's not only your, your article which is fascinating, but uh, some of the work that it it spawned uh, are yeah. Kara Swanson's article I think is so great. Yeah, I just I just read Kara Swanson's article, and uh, I found it uh, I found it very moving and particularly uh, in, in in this week and this month when we're so uh, in, in heightened uh, awareness of, uh, you know, of, of our history and the impact of, uh, of, of slavery and, uh, and the struggle for uh, recognition of the uh, contributions, particularly of African-Americans to our, our country and our culture. So thank you for, uh, for your work. Uh, I, I think it's really beautiful work. Well, thank you, George. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming to the show. This is really fun. And it was really a pleasure to highlight how cool Rutgers Newark is. And I I hope everyone really gives them credit for all the amazing stuff that that law school has done over the years. Thank you very much. My pleasure. slavery then join in the grand industrial band would you from misery and hunger be free then come do your share like a man there is power there is power in the band of working men when they stand when they stand hand in hand hand in hand that's a power that's a power that must rule in every land one industrial union grand have mansions of gold in the sky and live in a shack away in the back would you have wings up in heaven to fly and starve here with rags on your back there is power there is power in the band of working men when they stand hand in hand that's a power that's a power that must rule in every land one industrial union grand if you had enough of the blood of the land, then join in the grand industrial band. If for a change you would have eggs and ham, then come do your share like a man. There is power, there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. If you lack sluggers to beat off your head, then don't organize or unions despise. If you want nothing before you are dead, shake hands with your boss and look wise. There is power, there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land, one industrial union grand. Come all ye work from every land come join in the grand industrial band then we our share of this earth shall demand come on do your share like a man for there's power there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand
hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. One industrial union.